Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I thank you for your great love, and I thank you for this place and these people, Lord, who are working so hard to be your hands and to be your feet. Lord, I thank you for the opportunities you keep opening up for us, God, and I pray that we would continue to have the courage to step into those opportunities and to do our best to see what you might do in and through us. God, you keep moving in amazing ways that are beyond what we could ask and imagine. Lord, maybe they aren't what we always expect, but Lord, you are doing things and you're using us and your, your word is, is going forth from this place. It is growing in us. It is growing us as people. And Lord, that's what this is all about. So Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to us in clear ways. Lord, that you would speak through me, uh, that, that you would just help me to maintain focus as I preach. And Lord, that we would hear from you in these moments together that you might be honored and glorified, and that we might be challenged and changed as we seek to move deeper into relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to do my best to maintain composure, but I wrote this sermon two weeks ago not thinking that this Sunday was going to be the Sunday that I dropped off Michaela at school. So I'm in that headspace. And whoever here told me that it would get easier as she went along, you were so wrong. You were so wrong. But in March of uh, 2003, uh, Robin and I found ourselves in a position that no expecting parent wants to be in. We found ourselves in an ambulance racing from Beckley, West Virginia to Charleston, West Virginia so that we could be in a hospital with specialists dealing with neonatal um, intensive care issues. We, we, Robin was having her blood pressure, was soaring, it was going through the roof, so much so that uh, the doctors were telling us we're not really sure how this is going to go. They struggled to get our b- blood pressure under control. Every time they would give her a standard dose, her blood pressure would bottom out, and then they would take her off it, and her blood pressure would skyrocket again. So we had this constant back and forth that continued to happen, and, and we were really uncertain as to what to do. And I remember one day after several weeks of going back and forth with this, walking out in the hall, and one of the specialists pulling me to the side and said, hey, I just want you to prepare for how this is likely going to go. He said, if we can't get her blood pressure under control, you will 100% lose your baby daughter. And it's very likely that you will lose her as well. And be honest, I don't, I, don't, I don't hold any ill will against that doctor. There's no good way to say that. There's no way to say that that is not devastating, that is not traumatic. And so I walked outside after that conversation and we were at CAMC Women's and Children's Hospital and they have this very beautiful, picturesque uh, walkway along the river back behind the church. And holding up the hospital are these massive concrete pillars. And I remember walking to the back, resting my head and my hands against the pillars, and just sobbing. Somewhere in there was a prayer. I didn't know what to pray. I'm sure that in my mind at that time, as I think back, there there was a bit of anger. There was a bit of frustration, a, a whole lot of, God, why me? Why me? 
I mean, I'm, I'm trying to serve you the best I can. I'm getting ready to graduate from Bible college. I'm, I'm trying to be a youth pastor. We're giving you everything we have. We moved away from family two years ago, have been struggling through by ourselves. Why me? And that kind of went from God, why me, to please God, don't. Please God. Save my wife and save my daughter. Don't make me do this. Don't leave me alone. Please, God, let me know that you are here. What's interesting is I found myself at that pillar more than one time over the two and a half months that we were in the hospital. And it kind of became the place at which I prayed. You might even call it my own personal wailing wall. The truth was, as a young father-to-be and husband, 23 years old, just getting ready to graduate from college, I was utterly and completely helpless. There was nothing that I could do. Nothing that I could add to the equation. Nothing that I could say to make things better. Nothing that I could say to ease the tension. All I could do was both literally and figuratively stare at the wall and cry out to God for help. Interestingly enough, that's what we see here in Isaiah chapter 38. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38. Before I jump into reading this, I just want you to know this is going to be kind of a two-part um, sermon. We're, we're going to do the first half of Isaiah 38 today, and then we're going to do the second ha- half of Isaiah 38 into 39 next week because the two passages are inextricably linked And so we're going to look at them each in due time in the way that we need to see them. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 38 of Isaiah today. Isaiah 38, 1 through 8 says this. In those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order, because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully, and with wholehearted devotion have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, I will defend this city. And this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. I will make the shadow cast by the sun go back ten steps. It has gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. So the sunlight went back the ten steps it had gone down. So we see Hezekiah in exactly the situation that I'm talking about. 
And, and the encouragement to me here in this passage that I see is, is fairly clear. When we find ourselves staring at an impassable wall, prayer is our best course of action. When we find ourselves staring at an impassable wall, prayer is our best course of action. When we find ourselves looking at a situation or a circumstance or a struggle and we don't know what to do and we don't really have any options where we can, we can get in with our own hands and not a lot of good options where we can, we can fix it and we can maneuver and we can work our way around it or, or we can make things better. When we get in that moment, in truth, is prayer not our only option? I would argue that in truth it is. And, and that's where Hezekiah finds himself. And, and we see Hezekiah immediately turning to the Lord in prayer, which honestly was a, was a common practice for Hezekiah that we see throughout his life in the scriptures. And it's a reminder that, that prayer is a definitive feature in the life of a man or woman of God. See, we don't often think about that as being a primary step. Maybe we do kind of in the backs of our minds, but, but particularly in, in our economy as Americans, we like to see work, right? We want to see a tangible evidence and outworking in the life of the person, and we think of those as being definitive features of men and women of God. We think that, that men and women of God are, are first and foremost people of great piety and purity, we, we think of, of righteous acts and service, and those are important things that should be seen in the lives of men and women of God. I am not at all demeaning those, but that all should be built on a foundation of prayer. Because the truth is that none of us are good enough. None of us makes it on our own merit. We don't work our way into heaven. We don't work our way out of heaven. The, the, the whole thing about God saving us is based upon the grace of God and our reliance on him. Therefore, as I've preached recently, our first response to any stimulus or any circumstance should be always prayer. That there should be a pattern of us going to the Lord in prayer. And Hezekiah was one of the few good kings of Judah who, as the scripture says, and, and as Hezekiah himself says, had a whole heart for God. He did the very dead level best that he could to follow God, to serve him, to uphold his commandments and decrees, and to lead the people in the way that the Lord had for them. And there is a pattern, again, in Hezekiah's life of turning to the Lord in prayer. We see it here in verse 1, right? Verse 1 of chapter 38, we see Hezekiah turning to the Lord in prayer. Hezekiah is deathly ill. Now, we don't know what his illness was, right? This was thousands of years ago, so it could be the sniffles. We don't know. Everything killed you back then. And so we don't know what Hezekiah had, but we do know 100% for certain that, Isaiah, that Hezekiah is going to die. Why do we know that? Because it's so certain that God, the great physician, sends Isaiah, his PA, if you will, prophetic assistant, to tell, to tell Hezekiah, bro, this is terminal. This is it, right? There is no getting better from this. Like, if it had come from any other physician in the world, right? Any other doctor, any other specialist, there would still be hope, wouldn't there? 
No offense to doctors in the room, but we get it wrong sometimes. And so we could always go for a second opinion, and maybe they might see something that the first physician missed. But when, when God Almighty looks at it and he says, oh, uh, that's not good. That's game over, right? Like, who do you turn to when God himself said, you're going to die? So in verse 2, both, again, figuratively and literally, Hezekiah finds himself up against a wall. He's come up against the wall of his own mortality, the, the fragility of his own life. And the truth is, for each of, us, each of us, death is an unavoidable wall that all of us will come up against at some point in time. Hebrews 9.27 tells us death, that death is a life experience. People are destined to die once. Death is a life experience that all of us will ultimately share. Short of Jesus Christ coming back and taking us to glory with him. And as he comes up against this figurative wall that is death, right? He, what does he do? He does what most of us would do, what I did in the same circumstance. He turns and faces the wall, and he weeps. He cries out to God. He turns to the wall, and he cries. But this isn't the first time that Hezekiah has had this experience. If we flip back just a page, we look at Isaiah 37, 14 through 20, we see Hezekiah doing the same thing earlier. In Isaiah 37, 14 through 20, it says this. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. These are, these are letters that are coming from envoys saying, hey, Assyria is going to come and destroy you. We are on our way. We are going to take you captive. We are leveling everything. This is going to be bad for you. And Hezekiah receives these letters from the messengers. He reads them, and then what does he do? He went up to the temple of the Lord, spread spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all kingdoms, over all heaven and earth. You made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib. He has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to all of these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. We see the practice of prayer in Hezekiah's life, that something bad is coming. Hezekiah takes the letters that he has received from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He lays them out on the, on the ground, and the passage seems to indicate that not only does Hezekiah lay the papers out on the floor, but that Hezekiah himself lays out prostrate on the floor and cries out to God. Now, why do I tell you that? Because he may not be looking at a wall, but he's looking at a wall, right? We can look at this any way. And, and, and have we not all been in this position? 
Who among us has not gotten unbearably bad news and found ourselves staring at a ceiling, staring at a wall, staring at the floor, and crying out for help and mercy? If you're not, it's just a wait. If you haven't yet, it's a waiting game. I truly believe that it is a shared human experience that we will all at some point in time find ourselves in what seems like a hopeless situation with no option but to stare at the ceiling, stare at the wall, stare at the floor and pray and ask God to do something because we have no other options. And again, I want to remind us that, that it shouldn't just be when things have, have gone hard. I would argue, and I can't pull passages to prove this, but I would, I would submit to you that Hezekiah prayed in the hard times because Hezekiah made a practice of praying in the good times. And Scripture tells us over and over again that prayer is always an appropriate action in any and all circumstances. That prayer should be a pattern in our lives. That, that all the time that we pray, and again, I've, I've spoken about this before, we often think that that means we've got to have this deep, robust prayer life. I remember when I was in school, I believed that, that to have a robust prayer life, you needed to have a prayer journal. Because that's what the spiritual people did. And they would sit and they would stare at pages and they would write their prayers down and they would color around them and they were pretty. And I tried to do that and I wanted to throw the journal across the room. It didn't work for me. And I felt unspiritual, so I just prayed less or not at all, which didn't serve to make me any more spiritual, right? But you know what does work for me? I spend a lot of time in the car. I told you this before, but I'll tell you again, because I want you to know that prayer does not have to be this big flowery thing that we do at an altar somewhere or that we do in a prayer closet, that you could be driving down the road and you could be praying, when you're driving past someone's business, when you're driving past the hospital, you can pray for the doctors. I promise you they need it. When you're driving past a local business and you know that one of our members or someone in the community owns it, you can pray for that. When you drive past someone's house or you see a car that looks like theirs, some of you have cars, and I know what they look like. When you get a new car, just as we're on this, get the same car. Because <laughs> it messes up my prayer life. When you're driving down the road, you can offer up these prayers. Hey, God, I pray that you would be with Sean Malone in Brooklyn Pizza. I pray that you would work it and through them, help them to be a light here. God, I pray that you would be with all the doctors at the hospital. I know that, that, that strep throat's going around right now, and they're dealing with some stuff, and we're coming into respiratory season. God, be with them. Lord, I pray that you'd be with all these people that work at Cummins. I know that there's a lot of things that they've got to deal with with their job. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the families in this neighborhood. Listen, it does not have to be something elaborate and big, but you should be praying. And I know that sometimes praying before dinner gets, gets like a, a bad rap because it feels perfunctory. It's like we're just following the rules. But if that gets you praying, that's a good thing. So stop knocking it. It's good. You don't got to pray every time. Every time you eat a meal, that's okay. Like God's not going to make you choke on those peas because you didn't pray over them. I mean, he might, but I'm going to guess it had less to do with you not praying and more to do with something else. But brothers and sisters, we ought to be praying. That is a definitive feature in the life of a man or woman of God. Look, look at, look, think of this. I, just, I don't want you to go look at these. I've got them in your, in your notes. You can look at them later. 
Ephesians 6.8 tells us, Prayer in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. No prayer request is too small for us to take to God. Too insubstantial. Listen, when your child volunteers to pray at dinner and they pray for something that you think is silly, do not dare laugh at them or try to correct them. Did Jesus not say that we were to approach him with faith like a child? Pray with all kinds of, on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Philippians 4, 6 tells us, In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Colossians 4, 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 tells us, Pray without ceasing. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That doesn't even take into account passages in the Old Testament that tell us, hey, you should be praying. You should be approaching. Come to me with your concerns. Listen, this is a common thing and a common theme throughout Scripture. Our lives should be as tacky and as trite as it may seem. Our lives should be bathed in prayer. A definitive feature of our lives. Why? Why is prayer so important? Because prayer has the potential to change the course of God's will for our lives. Now there may be some of you, the Calvinists in the room are about to lose their mind right now. Follow with me here because you're going to have to argue with the text. Prayer does in fact have the potential to change things. Now, we can get all theological and we can try to work our way around it and be like, well, God, God just hadn't defined his will. How do we do that here, right? This passage doesn't allow us to do the theological gymnastics because God says, brother, get your life in order because you're going to die. This is it. Game over, right? That's what it says. I mean, you come talk to me later if I'm somehow reading this wrong, but in both languages, I looked at it this week, it says the same thing. Hezekiah's got game over. It's done. God has, it even says in the text, thus says the Lord. It is a prophetic utterance from God with a clear outcome. Count on it, right? Because what does the Bible tell us about the word of God? It never returns void. What God says happens. But then we can look beyond a little bit, and what do we see? We see God changing course. God saying, all right, go back to Hezekiah and tell him, tell him this. Now, if we look at the text, there's something we've got to understand. Living a good life does not guarantee we will always experience good times. Living a good life does not guarantee we will always experience good times, which is one of the things that we like to say. It is one of the unfortunate lies in the church today that if you just are righteous enough, everything will go well with you. You don't see that in Scripture. Hey, listen, brothers and sisters, that's not worked out that way for me. And, and if you figured it out, like, come lead me to Jesus because I'm following him wrong. But the fact of the matter is, Hezekiah's prayer highlights the quality of his own life. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. 
Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord, Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. It almost looks like Hezekiah, like, hey, God, I think you forgot something. God, um, time out. I'm a good guy. Like, you don't kill people like me. Like, you preserve me. You help me. God, you, you got to change your mind. Now, that's what we would think, right? That, that Hezekiah is, is doing what we would do, and he's negotiating with God, reminding God of what a great guy he is and saying, God, this, this is not right. Like, Lord, you've forgotten, you've forgotten how you function. Allow me to correct you. <laughs> Allow me to give you my resume, if you would, good sir. But you know what? That's not actually what's happening. Hezekiah hasn't all, all of a sudden become arrogant He's going to do that later. We're going to see that in chapter 30, 39. This isn't Hezekiah being arrogant. You know what's actually happening? Is Hezekiah is hearkening back to the promise of God. If we turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 and 15, we see this. This is from the Lord. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. Then in verse 15, the Lord will keep you free from every disease. He will not inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on those who hate you. This is a, this is a cry to God. Hey, not, not God. Hey, remember how great I am. But Lord, remember what you promised. Lord, please, let, let me have what you promised. Let, let, that, let that come about in my life. It may be true, though. Might Hezekiah be asking indirectly the same question we would ask when bad things come into our lives? Why me, God? Why do bad things happen to good people, Lord? Don't have a good answer for that question. But undoubtedly, Hezekiah is lifting up a cry to help, of help, for help to God. Less a reminder of what Hezekiah has done and more an appeal to what God has promised to do for those who faithfully follow him. Sometimes bad things happen to good and godly people. In those moments, it does no good to appeal to our own righteousness, our own goodness, because as we already noted, and as the Bible demonstrates both early and often, we all fall short of God's standards. Our best course of action, then, is to appeal not to our own goodness, but to the goodness of God, to his grace and his mercy on the basis of his faithfulness to fulfill his promises in accordance with his will. But the truth is that our prayers do have potential to change situations, to change circumstances, and we see that in the life of Hezekiah. God hears our prayers and alter, often alters the course that he is on in keeping with his compassion and his grace. Now, you might say to me, well, God is unchanging. That is absolutely true. In his character, God is absolutely unfaltering and unfailing. He is always God. He is always consistent with who he is. But listen to me. I've always struggled with this with the theologians that are like, God never changes his mind. 
So let me get this straight. You, as a fallible human, have the ability to change the course of what you're going to do, but Almighty God can't change his mind. It's not that God is fickle. It's that God is gracious, and we are part of the equation. Scripture tells us over and over and over again that if we pray, God will hear, and he will respond. And oftentimes, that response is God was going this way, and something bad was coming, and the people pray, and they cry out to God for mercy. And what happens? Lo and behold, God in grace brings about salvation. It's what we see here in the life of Hezekiah. In verse 1, we see very clearly, it says, This is what the Lord says. You are going to die. You will not recover. Do we all agree that that is a definitive statement? Right? That there's finality to that. This is how it's going to be. But then we see Hezekiah pray. He cries out to God in verses 2 to 3. In verse 4, it says this. This is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, and, and just to clarify, side note, the God who gave you these promises, right? This is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Listen, what God has said, God will do. But if we have the right and ability to change our mind, he certainly does as well. In fact, God often promises that he will relent. Word often used in scripture, he will relent. That he will change course if we humbly and consistently call out to him with faith in accordance to his will and his word. God consistently is bending the course of human history towards his grace and mercy. It is in fact God's desire to save us. It is God's desire to demonstrate his love and faithfulness to us and to the world at large. And when we call out to him in faith, we may not get exactly what we want. But God has promised to hear us and to respond according to his compassionate grace and mercy. We see a definitive change here. It feels funny coming out of my mouth even to say it. But I have a hard time arguing against it. Prayer has the potential to change the course of God's will for our lives. God hears us. God cares. And God responds accordingly. Now, I want to clarify this. Because one of the statements that I hate I just really struggle with it, is, is the statement that prayer has the power to move the hand of God. Does it, though? I mean, we don't have the power to force God's hand. It has the potential to change things. And why does that have a potential to change things? Well, because prayer is powerful. But prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Y'all heard, Right? Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Our, our prayers aren't powerful because of anything in and of ourselves. 
It's not if we could just say, and this is one of the problems with our prayer lives, right? We think that if we could just say the right words in the right order with the right formula, it'll work like some kind of a magic spell and God will be compelled to move for us. It's like, oh, God's sitting in heaven and he hears us prayers like, oh man, Derek got me today. He said, he said the prayer. Derek, Derek pulled Trump today. Good on you, Derek Barley. I'm going to give him what he wants. That new shredding truck you wanted, it's coming. <laughs> but is that not how we act sometimes? Like, we're so careful because if I can just say the right words in the right order, God will have to do what I tell him to do. God is not beholden to you. <laughs> you know that, right? Like, God does not answer to you in any way at any time. It doesn't matter if you or I doesn't under, don't understand what's going on. God does, and if God does it, it's right. It's correct. But God in his grace and mercy has made his power available to us to work and move on our behalf. And sometimes God, in fact, does give us what we want. Sometimes it's not good, right? We get what we want and it ends up being a bad thing. But often God will work and move according to his grace and mercy based upon what we ask because God has invited us into the equation. Our God created and sustains the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. It is God's world and we're just living in it. And while we're constrained by the rules of the natural created order, God is not. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Romans 11, 36 tells us, for everything comes from him and exists by his power. Acts 17, 28 says, for it is in him we live and move and have our being. Who better to call out to when we have an impassable difficulty than the God who controls and moves creation by his hand? As the child, old children's song goes, he holds the whole world in his hands. And if that is true, we can trust him to move and work in powerful and miraculous ways at times. In verses four and five, God promises to deliver Hezekiah from death by giving him 15 more years to live. But what's awesome about this is Hezekiah has come to God about the death issue, right? God, I'm gonna die, and this is not awesome. I've, I've tried to follow you, Lord. Please have mercy. And God's like, all right, you get 15 more years. And not only that, but you also win a new car, right? God's like, not only am I gonna give you new life, but that thing that's been causing you so many problems, that sin of cherub thing that you've been praying about, I'm gonna take care of that as well. You know what the Bible tells us? That God will do abundantly, exceedingly above all we can ask or imagine by his gracious power. You know what's so cool about this? Is not only, it would have been enough, would it not, for God to say, Hezekiah, I'm gonna save you. You get 15 more years. And Hezekiah could have sat in bed and maybe got better and lived out his 15 years and that would have been cool enough. But God, 
did abundantly, exceedingly above all he could ask and imagine. And he goes, you know what, Hezekiah? Not only that, but I'm going to do this sin of cherub thing. And not only that, but I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to do it and that you can watch for this. So go look at the steps, Hezekiah, and I'm going to make the sun go back 10 steps that it had gone forward, which is really a cool picture if you think about it, right? Because in a figurative sense, the sun was setting on Hezekiah's life. And God says, I'm going to control the time factor of your life, and I'm going to give you back some time. And God, in order to prove his ability to control time, made the sun go backwards in the sky. Is that not the coolest thing that you've ever thought about? I mean, that's pretty awesome. Hey, Hezekiah, I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you more years. And while I, in order to prove you that I'm going to give you more years, I'm going to give you a couple more hours today because I'm that good. That's power. Now, something that's interesting about this, just to give you a little bit for next week, is that this sign is so amazing that the Babylonians, who are also dealing with the Assyrians, see the sign, somehow track it back to Judah, and say, we got to go get them on our side. Because their God is doing something amazing and has real power. See, our prayer has, has the, the opportunity, the potential to not only change our lives, but to change the world around us. Not because we're powerful, but because God is. Our prayers do not oblige God to do anything. But God has promised to hear our prayers and to move on our behalf when we pray, pray to him in faith according to his will. Prayer does not move the hand of God. But God in his grace does move his hand in his own power when we pray to him in keeping with his promises. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 tells us this. This is the confidence we have approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. In James 5, 13 through 16, it says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise, which is just prayer to music. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call to the elders, the leaders of the church, to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You know, it's interesting. I, again, write these sermons oftentimes week, weeks in advance. And so I wrote this sermon. And last night, I found myself driving home. We dropped Michaela off up at college. And we're driving home. And we're somewhere north of Indy. And I get a phone call from J.J., and JJ says, hey, Dad, we got a problem. And I'm like, okay, what's up? He said, well, there, there is coolant spraying out from under my car. I'm pretty sure that my water pump just went out. My, my cooling system is gone. It's done. And I'm like, um, what I'm thinking is, what exactly do you want me to do it in your, my, your mom's electric car north of Indianapolis? Okay, um, 
can you get it off to the side? Now, mind you, I'm already like an emotional mess because we just left Michaela. Not in a good headspace. Hadn't stopped for dinner, so I'm starving and I'm a little bit hangry. And so I'm sitting in the car going, this, this is terrible. Like, buddy, just get the car out of the way and we'll try to figure this out. He's like, okay. And I start praying. Just in my head, I'm like, God, help me help my son. I don't know what to do for him. I don't know what to have. I don't know how to help. I, I can't do anything. I'm so far away. I don't have an answer. I don't have a way to get the car off of the street there at Scoop the Loop with 50 billion cars driving around acting like fools. What am I supposed to do, God? I need your help. Well, then I call Tim Ship, member here at First Baptist Church, and I'm like, hey, man, JJ's car has a problem. I just want to know from you, like, can he drive it? And he's like, you know what? I just parked. I'll walk down there and check it out for you. Man, that seems so small. But when you're stuck away from your kid, you can't do anything to help. Parents, you know what that feels like, right? Like, I can't do anything. Tim goes over and he gets with JJ and they help move the car to the side to get it ready. Then I get there and I get in line with all the fools driving their cars trying to get up to JJ because you can't get anywhere. Like, I love the event, don't get me wrong, but I was not loving it at the moment. And so I'm driving up and I'm not real happy and I'm not real sure what's going to happen. And as I'm driving past the, this, this street corner, I hear a familiar voice and it's Montica Chambers. And she's running out and she's, of course, Montica, so she's happy. <laughs> and she's like, hey, hey, I heard JJ's car broke down. And I'm like, not good news, right? And she's like, well, hey, um, Elton's on his way down. We have a triple A card and we can get free towing. And so we'll have JJ's car towed back for you. You can just, just park your truck. We'll take care of this for you. And I'm like, man, that's pretty awesome. It's like, well, I got to go down and tell Robin what's going on. So then I get down there, park the truck, and I walk back, and Dr. Chambers comes up, and he's like, hey, man, um, I'm going to call them, but I know you've got church tomorrow, and it's a busy work day for you, so why don't, why don't you go home and let me take care of this? Tell me God doesn't answer prayers. That's small, right? And what's funny about that is just moments before I was driving back feeling bummed about my daughter. I'm like, God, show me you're really doing something. Show me I'm not wasting my time. I'd much rather be up north with my daughter today. But Lord, show me that you're moving and that it's worth what we're constantly doing at the church. And these small things happen. Tim Ship was an answer to prayer. Chambers were an answer to prayer. Brothers and sisters, our God is powerful. Our God hears when we cry to him. And he moves on our behalf beyond and above all we could ask and imagine. It is worth us praying to him. We've tried to make it a practice here at First Baptist Church to do what it says in James and to do what the passages in Scripture say. To pray for one another when things are going on, and we want to invite you to do that any week that you've got something. Feel free to stop me, and we will pray for you. And we got this wonderful oil that my daughter bought us in Israel that we'll anoint you with, and so we're for that. And what we're going to do this morning is right now I'm going to invite the band to come forward and take their, their place. And I'm going to stand right down here at the front. And as we play, and as they play, and as we sing, 
We're going to stand. We're all going to be singing and praying to God. If you have something you need prayed for today, I'm going to invite you to come to the front. So we'll stay, we'll, we'll sing as long as we need to. And if we're going a little bit long and you feel like you've got to go somewhere, I know we've got a business meeting that's going to come and it will be brief right after, but we understand if you can't stay, that's fine. But we're going to be obedient to what God's word says. And if we say that prayer has power, then we're going to live on that. So if you need prayed for and over this morning, we're going to invite you to come forward. So let's stand as we sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. And we're going to have a time of prayer this morning as we close. We invite you to come forward as we sing.